Welcome to Warm Regards, a conversation on the front lines of climate change. I'm Jacqueline Gill, a paleoecologist at the University of Maine. Joining me this week from Nebraska is Ramesh Langani, an associate professor of biology at Doan University. How's it going, Ramesh? It's going well. You know, just uh, just living out here in the plains, trying to stay cool in the heat. Oh, so. man. Yeah. Uh, we've been having a... Well, it's been really beautiful here in Maine, but we have temperatures in the mid 90s coming next week. And I just feel like I'm a delicate Arctic flower and I don't know how I'm going to handle it. I think we've got those current temperatures right now, the high temperatures, uh, so there's a lot of water drinking happening. Yes, stay hydrated. Um, and you have to take care of yourself anyway. I feel like things have been so intense. I haven't even been able to adjust to one day's news because in the next day something else happens. Um, this week has already been really intense. Um, I think the story that's on a lot of our minds is yesterday's surprise announcement about Justice Kennedy's plans for retirement. Um, uh, yeah, I, I'm still kind of reeling from this one. And I you know, was spending all of yesterday thinking about the sort of handmaid's tale implications of that, uh, kind of seeing a lot of my friends, you know, really reeling from the possible um, repercussions of that decision and what it will mean for Trump to be able to um, uh, nominate another Supreme Court justice. But there are also some climate implications of this that I had not considered until today. Um, mm -hmm. So I thought maybe we could chat about that for a minute. Yeah. And I'll, I'll say I, I was in the same place as you yesterday. I was not necessarily thinking about the climate implications, but, you know, Supreme Court judges rule on a whole suite of issues, as we are well aware. And, uh, and climate change is unfortunately something that has to now be litigated in the courts mm -hmm. rather than litigated by science. So, yeah. Right. And we can talk about whether the peer review process is more or less, you know, you know, cordial and collegial than right. <laughs> the federal right. court system. But um, yeah, so for those who aren't familiar, um, I think the the landmark decision that we're thinking about is um, Massachusetts versus the EPA. So Justice Kennedy was pretty conservative, but he often broke with the GOP on a number of issues. And this um, 2007 decision found that the EPA is actually required to address climate change if its own scientists found that it posed a risk to public health, which I kind of love that it sort of punts to the scientists, right? Reminding everybody that the scientists should be the one setting the agenda um, for you know, what we should be concerned about in this case. And, and so then two years later, the EPA issues this document that's known as the endangerment finding, which basically states this very thing that Yes, we as scientists believe that climate change poses a public health risk, which therefore makes it part of the EPA's purview. And this finding was really, it, it turns out, was super instrumental in a series of these Obama-era regulations that did everything from boosting fuel economy standards to cutting CO2 emissions from power plants and various other climate policies. So this was actually, it turns out, a pretty important ruling. Um, mm -hmm. We live in a different world now, obviously, than 2007. Um, right. Yeah. So getting a new justice could have some pretty big implications for, for this decision, I think. Right. And and by no means do I have a law degree, but I don't know how, I know one of the things that was found through this endangerment finding was it wasn't that CO2 itself was a pollutant, but the levels that they're at now are, as you said, are a threat to public health. And so I think that's going to be a tension that might be exploited. The idea that well, you know, the standard CO2 is plant food, so mm -hmm. it's not a pollutant. Um, mm -hmm. I could see some, uh, 
climate denialist, uh, climate skepticism uh, lawsuits built around that argument, especially if the right mix of justices is on the bench. Yeah, I could definitely see this going back up to the higher courts. I mean, we know that we have, I mean, aside from the fact that we have a president who has called climate change a hoax, our current head of the EPA, Scott Pruitt, doesn't agree that climate change is within the EPA's purview, despite this constitutional you know, decision, um, this, or this precedence, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we lose that authority, if the EPA no longer has a say about climate change, I think that basically means we have no federal tool to combat climate change, and which is just going to make us fall further behind the rest of the world. Um, so that's that's a really, really great possibility there, in case you didn't have enough things to worry about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it's, it's going to be interesting to see the it's always interesting to see the role of science uh, in in the court system and how it is used and potentially misused, um, and how much reliance the um, ju- the justices may need uh, of their you know their scientific understanding. I think what was it a few months ago? There was a case I'm forgetting the name where the judge asked the scientists to give them a lesson on climate change. I believe. Mm. I can't remember the exact details of it, but I think um, I remember there was some news about that. And I just remembered it in this conversation. Yeah. And it's like, how do you even do that? Right. (laughs) Um, Right. In the next five minutes, uh, I'll tell you a small portion of what it's taken me like 11 years of school to learn. Um, Right. Right. Yeah. So what a week, everybody. Um, Since the election, there are days when I just don't even know if I'm in the right place doing the right thing. And in the last few weeks or months, I've seen a lot of my science colleagues asking themselves, you know, does science even matter in a world that looks more and more like a dystopian novel? Um, You know, what am I even doing here? How can I even care about my work when there's so much at stake? And the answer I think is, of course it does. Science is about more than just wonder and discovery and exploration. If that's all that science was, then yes, it would arguably be a fundamentally selfish endeavor in as much as happiness is selfish. And we can have that argument over years later. But but science is so much more than that. Science is in part a blueprint for understanding our planet and how it works. And that matters because this is where we live. This is the, the, the life support system for, for every human being. And at least until we figure out the whole interstellar travel thing, And as a side note, we could probably do a whole show about the problems with science fiction treating Earth like it's a disposable planet because we have all these backups. But for now, for now, this is what we've got. So the natural world, our resources, our sacred places, our food and our water and our clean air, it's our lifeline, literally. And those things are worth fighting for, especially because we know that the impacts of climate change and environmental degradation don't hit everyone equally. You can't divorce science from sexism racism, colonialism, and other forms of oppression, and not only because science is a human endeavor, so it's subject to our human flaws and limits, but also because the problems that we work on as scientists affect people in very complex ways. And today's guests get that more than most, and I'm so excited to have them on the show, because not only do they understand that climate change is a human problem, unlike many of our elected officials and leaders, they are actually doing something about it. And the kicker, some of them can't even vote yet. It is my pleasure to invite two activists from Zero Hour, 
Madeline Tu, 15-year-old climate activist, fundraising director for Zero Hour, and Zanaji Artis, a, an 18-year-old founding member of Zero Hour who incidentally graduated from high school in Connecticut recently and will be starting college at Brown University this fall. Zanaji, Madeline, we are so happy to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's great to be Thank here. You. Um, so let's just dive right in. When you say youth activists, how old are we talking about? Well, pretty much Generation Z, so about 25 and under. Uh, we're a completely youth-led movement, so it's all the young people who are making the decisions within our organization. Wow, that is that is amazing because, um, you know, you keep seeing these articles that are in the news about how it's it's the the Z generation or or the youth that are going to be carrying the weight or paying the price of the poor decisions that the previous generations have made, and I feel like, you know, I I feel like Ramesh and I grew up as as an environmental generation. Like we got mm-hmm. we got that the environment was in trouble. We got that this was an issue, but I feel like your generation has an even more urgent sense of climate change. Like there just doesn't seem to be any doubt about that at all. Can you guys talk about that a little bit? Right. You're definitely right that there is this kind of sense of pressure um, that, you know, we kind of have, there is no other choice than to act on climate change because it's completely our problem. And I think that's a little bit of where the irony lies is that we're going to have to clean up this mess that generations before us um, caused, that our parents and our grandparents caused, Mm -hmm. um, that we weren't really much a part of much a part of the, the damage that was done. Yeah, and that's especially um, important because, I mean, we didn't actually elect the officials um, that are really implementing the climate policy that we have today. Yeah, how much does that motivate you guys? Like thinking about, thinking in terms of like these policies that, that are having such a big impact on you and yet you don't have a voice in our representative democracy. I've, I've even seen some people saying that, you know, uh, teenagers and younger should be able to vote. Yeah, right. I, mean, I definitely think it's a driving factor for us at Zero Hour. Um, we want to provide a voice for the young people who haven't had the opportunity to influence policy. Um, and it's definitely important because like, policy is the lasting thing that is impacting our actions on climate change. Um, and the youth voice not being included in that is really important. And that's why Zero Hour is organizing. And you're right that it makes us just that more motivated to really voice our opinions through the march, since this is really our only outlet to tell the country um, our perspective um, and what we kind of want government officials to do, how to act. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this march, um, that's the Youth Climate March, July 21st, Washington, D.C. So tell us, what's this all about? Right. So we're actually holding a lobby day and a march in D.C. on July 19th and July 21st. Um, And it's going to be for the purpose of, well, the lobby day is to deliver our demands to elected officials and advocate for the youth voice in the climate conversation. Um, And our specific demands are for members of government to first stop taking money from the fossil fuel industry and to also just follow common sense climate change policies, which includes you know, stopping fossil fuel projects and investing in renewable energy instead. And this march will kind of allow us to um, advocate for the youth voice in this climate conversation. Are you, on that lobby day, are you targeting particular uh, government officials? 
Um, yeah, so we're targeting a lot of um, specifically senators. Um, and there are like a lot of people who have supported um, climate justice work in the past. So um, those people are not really people that we're going to be targeting. Um, we might be speaking with them just about like praising their great work so far. But um, we are targeting a lot of people who have been accepting um, donations from fossil fuel industries for their campaigns um, and really being complacent in um, the oil industry's rise to power. What's been the biggest challenge in organizing the lobby day and or the march? I'm sure it's still, I'm sure you guys are still, in, you know, organizing, but what's been one of the biggest challenges? Um, I'd say just simply our age, which I know is something that we can't help, but um, often there's kind of this perception that adults have of our organizers when they're communicating with us that, you know, we might not be as responsible or able to uh, manage money or uh, carry out a successful event. And it's kind of, I mean, it's an obstacle because we really are serious about this issue. And we are, I mean, as a, as a organization, we are all just trying our hardest to make ourselves heard. Yeah. And I was, uh, I was involved in the National March for Science organizing before I stepped away for reasons we can talk about another time. But um, so I, I have some small sense of like the incredible amount of work and effort that goes into this. And um, it's uh, just uh, it's amazing to me the work that you guys are doing, because, you know, for so many of us, and I'm sure this is true for you, too, like starting something like this, you know, you're all kind of learning on the job. On, in some ways, like, so do you, um, how do people get involved or how do you, uh, it, it sounds like this is a pretty national level movement where you have people from all over who are, who are participating. Um, how do you find each other? Um, yeah, um, that was definitely one of the most difficult things um, for organizing because we're all in different places in the country. Um, so only a few of us have actually met in person. Um, so we've been doing all of our meetings and things online um, through video conferencing. But um, yeah, I definitely say that like going to like political summer programs and like getting involved with your like sustainability committees at school and like that's the way that we kind of networked with more people and got more volunteers. Right. That's how Zanaji and I actually met at um, a summer program in Princeton, along with Jamie Margolin, our founder. Um, and we kind of came into that summer program with all with this idea of urgency for climate change. And we were able to collaborate and kind of develop this idea um, for a youth climate march. Right. So, so I'm just looking right now, I'm at your website and I'm looking at the, at the map and there seems to be, um, you know, a little bit of a concentration in the Northeast, but I see there's someone out in Missouri. And uh, so have you, how have you leveraged things like social media to, to get people to join or to find individuals that can help move the project or the March goals forward? Well, I mean, there definitely is a body of passionate youth um, on the issue of climate change out there and throughout the country. And I just think that, you know, on social media, we kind of had to just put ourselves out there, um, make ourselves as known as we possibly can. And from there, people kind of, you know, reached out to us because it is a shared worry that a lot of us do have at this age. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with that too. 
Um, and I also think that social media is super important for us because, well, for one, it's free. And who doesn't love it? <laughs> right, right. Also, like, there's a lot of climate groups everywhere in the U.S. that aren't really connected. Um, and so, mm. like, using social media, we've been able to get into contact with a bunch of different groups. Um, and that's how we've gotten some of our partners. Um, so on our website, you can see all of our partners there. But really, like, social media has been a great outlet for us to connect with other groups as well. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you, too, there was something that I think Madeline said that made me think about, you know, just the challenges of, of, of a youth movement, uh, but also the the kind of possible advantages. Like, I'm curious, it sounds like you get some skepticism in your responses, but I'd love to hear, like, what the range of responses are, because I could imagine some people might be really, like, emotionally um, or have a strong emotional response because you're youth and you're really passionate and, you know, people are always going on about, but what about the children? And then, you know, now the children are literally coming up and saying, this is what we care about. So I could see a lot of power there, but I can also see, you know, like Madeline said, what if people are being dismissive? It's like, oh, you guys, you know, we're worried about your ability to handle the logistics or the financials, or, you know, it's so cute that you're passionate about this, but, you know, wait until, you know, 10 years when you become old and bitter or whatever. So it's like either you might have this advantage where people might not expect a lot of you and then and then you're just like, bam, I just said something super profound or really moving or um, you had, you know, that kind of played on your low expectations of me and yet I really know my stuff. So I'm kind of curious, like what, um, how, how do you guys see your youth as like an advantage and, and or a disadvantage? Um, I think that you're right, that it definitely is a mixed response. You know, there are some people that are totally in support of youth action and want to um, yeah, be able to support in any way that they can. And then, like you said, there are other people who just think that we are not of the age to kind of successfully carry out an event um, like what we're doing. But I think that in terms of youth advantage, I mean, like we said, it is really something that will be affecting our generation directly. And I think our generation kind of has a sense of that. And we know how urgent it is to act on climate change um, in the governmental realm and other because it's it's our problem, basically. And, and I'll say I was also subject to those dynamics, you know, when we were talking about who we should have on the show, um, you know, obviously Zero Hour came up. And so I did a little research. And when I clicked on on the map to see who we were, we were interviewing, I, I was... I was blown away. I was like, oh, 15 and 18. All right. Well, I feel useless, uh, but also inspired and in awe of what you all are organizing and, and doing. So um, maybe that's just me fangirling over you all. But that that was, you know, it, it was great to see. Right. Thanks so much. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely is like a mixed response there. You know, there's a, there's a group of adults like you who um, are just kind of yeah, in full support of our youth um, effort. So has there been another climate, you mentioned the idea that, you know, there are a number of these climate groups sort of working towards um, political climate action. Um, has there been a group that you feel like your goals partners well with or um, that you all can sort of synergistically uh, help each other move each other's agendas forward? Um, right. Yeah, so I think that like, a lot of our partners, um, so like the Sierra Club, for example, um, we were working a lot with them um, and they are doing like a lot of great work. Um, but 
I think that even though like we are doing similar things with climate justice, um, we're really different from a lot of other groups right now um, in the sense that we're trying to address the systems of oppression that have uh, been the root cause of the climate crisis. And also like we are youth run um, and that just adds a completely different perspective than what a lot of groups have right now. Right. right. Just on something that Zanaji said, um, you know, we're, we're partnering with a lot of environmental organizations and our missions are, are very similar. Um, but what really sets us apart is that we are completely youth run. Um, and it's really, that's because we're trying to highlight and elevate the voices of youth because our voices really do matter in this conversation. Yeah, that really struck me as something that, you know, as you said, there are a lot of organizations out there and unfortunately they're, they're not always necessarily well-connected. Um, but I think there were two things for me that really made Zero Hour stand out. The one, first being the, the youth-centered uh, leadership, which I think is fantastic. But also, um, the I love that. The, so the tagline for Zero Hour is, we're the ones we've been waiting for, which is really powerful. And um, your mission, there's a, a statement that you, you, you want to center the voices of diverse youth in the conversation around climate and environmental justice. And it's that word justice that I think really sets Zero Hour apart from a lot of the, the climate-oriented organizations that are out there. Um, and I would love to hear your perspective about why this, uh, you know, to kind of riff a little bit more on what Zanaji was talking about, like what is so important about, about centering justice, not just having it be sort of a, a tangential, a tangential you know, part of your mission statement, but it's, it's like right up there front and center. Um, it's not like climate science, climate change, it's climate justice. Yeah. Um, so I think that the word justice is really important when talking about um, the climate crisis, because um, like, it's a real thing affecting people. And if we're just talking about the science um, and the impact that it's going to have on plants and animals and the planet itself, then we're leaving out the people who are actually getting impacted and those people who are living near coal plants and the people that are getting their water contaminated and all of that stuff. So that's why um, justice is really important for those people. Yeah, I think you make a really great point. The idea that obviously the polar bear metaphors have not moved individuals, at least in the political realm, enough. And so the idea of thinking about climate change from the perspective of merely saving the earth versus talking about climate change from the perspective of saving us, I think is an important shift in the conversation that needs to happen. And I think um, it's great that you all are putting that, as Jacqueline said, front and center um, so that we can't just push climate off onto the polar bears. Yeah, that's such a good point, Ramesh, because it makes me think of how, you know, you and I are like the Captain Planet generation in a lot of ways. And but that right. that planet was like the sort of blue planet, like blue dot sort of, you know, view from space um, you know, where you don't see the people and where in many cases the people are the problem. Right. The people are causing the environmental degradation. Mm -hmm. It's the urbanization. It's you know overpopulation and all the sort of um, kind of problematic ways in which environmentalism was framed when we were growing up. And, and that's been just a, a huge shift, even just in, in terms of my 
my own experience as, as an environmental activist or advocate um, is, yeah, this recentering of people that the, the people are living in this planet and the what we do to the planet then comes back to to humans. And, and, and it's not even what we do collectively. It's that what a very small portion of the planet is doing to the rest of the planet. And so, yeah, so this this whole idea of, of framing, you know, environmental justice as is kind of integral to this environmental movement, I just feel like is such a sea change compared to, you know, the way we thought of the environment when we were, you know, when we were in our teens. Absolutely. Right? I, think, I think humanizing climate change really makes our push for action a lot more urgent because like you said, with, um, if, if you're just pointing to the polar bears and saying, you know, we have to save them. I mean, it's an important thing, but there are other things that households have to worry about. Like you have mouths to feed or, um, other things like that. Um, but, you know, it's kind of one thing to hear about it on the news, but it's another to actually live through it and see how destructive climate change um, can be. Um, like, for example, I uh, was able to witness, or I, I had to witness um, Hurricane Sandy and Irene a couple of years back. And um, luckily, my home and immediate, and immediate family um, were not impacted by the hurricane, but um, I knew a lot of people that were. And not only that, but New Jersey, I mean, it's expected to experience about one to two feet of sea level rise in the first half of the century. And I mean, it's major. Um, yeah. It'll affect people living here, you know, their homes, their transportation. So that was really one of the things that convinced me um, that, you know, this is real. It's happening. And me as youth, I need to take action and do something about this. Right. So I guess going off of that, um so you talk about Sandy as sort of this defining environmental moment for you. Um, Zanaji, have you had a sort of a defining environmental experience or a defining climate change based experience that has motivated you to um, get so deeply involved with the, with, or, you know, start an organization or work with an organization like this? So I actually haven't had um, really like a defining moment where I've just said like, this is absurd what we're doing to the planet and its people. And like, we have to change. Um, and like living in Connecticut, I don't, I like, I haven't really felt the impact as much as some other people have. Like, for example, Puerto Rico, like they got hit really hard with that hurricane. And like, I'm pretty sure that was related to climate change. But I think there's a lot of blurred lines between um, climate change and weather patterns. I'm not really sure, like, if these past few summers have been just, like, really hot um, just because of climate change or because of different weather. So I'm not really sure. You know, it's a good thing we have a paleoecologist <laughs> on, the, on the line. Well, I was, I was just about to say, you know, don't, don't feel bad because that's something that, you know, we're still, it's still really difficult in the scientific community to be able to, you know, attribute any one incident to climate change. Um Although increasingly, you know, the, the we know that the frequency and intensity of these kinds of events are are, are very likely, you know, um, due to climate change. And so, it's yeah. it's been interesting how the extreme weather events, in particular, um, are are the ones that kind of I, f I feel like do a, do a, a lot of legwork in terms of getting people to realize, oh wow, what we're seeing here, you know, is different. Um, and it's sort of putting things front and center, especially the, when you see the human impacts, right? Like how many people in Puerto Rico still don't have power or access to clean water, right? And that, again, I think just reinforces this point that it's so hard to, um, 
to disentangle the the human component from the environmental environmental component. Um, so, uh, kind of shifting gears just a little bit to to talk about you know what you are all doing at at Zero Hour. Um, I really love that part of your mission is creating entry points and and doing training to get other youth on board with this movement. So um, what do you guys mean by creating entry points? Like what, what sorts of things are you doing to kind of bring people in? Um, I think the point there is that we are um, really trying hard to make it easier for young people to speak out about what they're passionate about, because I mean, people are always stronger when they're fighting in numbers. And I think just with marches in DC and kind of all across the country now, that really is an opportunity for people to feel like they have the power to stand up against our government um, along with other passionate youth. Yeah, and going off that, um, at our um, event in DC this summer, uh, we're gonna be training people who are attending the lobby day um, about lobbying senators. And so that's definitely gonna be a useful tool for when these people go back to their communities and so they can talk to their local officials about things that they want to change in policy about um, climate change. So yeah, what strikes me about this, and again, I, I don't mean to like keep emphasizing the generational differences here, um, but like I, I would say like for Ramesh and my generation, um, and not to keep speaking for you, Ramesh, sorry. No, 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 <laughs> you're, you're right on point. Okay, cool. All right. So check Captain Planet, check. All right. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, just the stuff you guys are doing, like the lobbying, the, you know, contacting your representatives, marching, organizing, a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of my colleagues um, and, and people that I grew up with uh, are just doing that for the first time. So you guys are getting like a 20 year head start on us in terms of, you know, the, the kinds of organizing and activism and just the crash course that you're getting and how to interact with and push back on the government and, and all the tools at your disposal. And, um, right. it's such a great learning experience. Like over the past couple of months, I've learned more about activism and organizing, um, really important movements than I could ever imagine. You're right about that. And I'll, and I'll speak to the point that, you know, growing up, I was taught, really plant a tree and it's good for the earth. That was sort of the, you know, that was sort of the environmentalism uh, in my life. And so the notion of talking to a representative or lobbying or thinking about environmental policy was not something that was in my childhood environmental vernacular. It was, as Jacqueline said, Captain Planet, don't litter and you know, give a hoot, don't pollute. And, um, recycle when you can. So it's it's great to see you all, again, engaging more deeply with the processes and structures that drive the, the, the environment that we see now, because that was not necessarily the case. Again, I'm in my mid-30s, only 10, 15 years ago. Right. Yeah, I laughed when you said plant trees because it brought me back to. So this this is like in contrast, like that the activism which I'm putting in scare quotes that you know I was exposed to as a kid, which is like fifth grade. There's the Teen Spirit Trees for Tomorrow campaign. I don't know if this will ring a bell to anybody, um, but if you, I think we had to. I don't remember exactly what the details were, but I remember a whole bunch of us frantically writing like 
Teen Spirit Trees for Tomorrow on index cards, like as many index cards as we could, which is is just the irony of like wasting right. that much paper. And who, whichever school collected the most of these things, uh, Luke Perry from 90210 would come to your school and plant trees on your campus. <laughs> and and it's, it's like, there's just so much wrong with that on so many levels, not the least of which is like how many packages of like little pieces, you know, little index cards or like, you know, three by five pieces of paper did we waste just so that Luke Perry would plant like five trees on our campus. Oh man. Uh, yeah, this, I think now I see why why we screwed up so badly not not to say anything even of the baby boomers etc um before us but yeah we kind of got started but we did a really bad job and i and i don't mean Mm -hmm. like i'm I'm, i don't mean to joke i'm not trying to make light of just how badly you know we the previous generations you know have failed um because this is something that i mean I i feel failed by previous generations too but um i didn't come to that awareness until you know, until my thirties really. And so now it's like, mm-hmm. all right, what can we do from here? Um, and yeah, so I would say, well, I guess I want to hear from you, um, Sanaji and Madeline, like what, you know, for people who are over 25, what would you like from us? Like, how can we help? Well, it's not going to be all youth at the March. Um, obviously all ages um, of people who are in support of, you know, the youth voice and climate action in general are absolutely welcome to participate in the events that we've um, planned and kind of just support us in any way possible um, in delivering these demands to government. Yeah. And you can vote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Right. So Zanaji, will this be your first, uh, will this November be your first election to vote in? Yeah. So I think um, our Connecticut primary is in August and then I'll be voting in November. For... Oh, gosh. That's awesome. I, I don't know. I, I love, I've always loved voting. It just feels like it's, I have this very idealized, you know, sense of what voting is and what it represents. And I know it doesn't always work out that way, but I still you know, geek out about voting every time. So I'm really, I'm really excited for you because that first time is just a really, it's a really special thing. So I'll ask another question. So I'm out here in the middle of the country. um, And I know I have a number of my students that are passionate about climate change. But again, we're in a very different uh, sort of political environment here compared to the Northeast. And so what would you suggest um, students in the middle of the country, how can they, if they can't make it to DC, um, what can they, what's the best thing for them to do? What do you recommend as the most um, impactful thing for them to do on July 21st? Honestly, I would say um, if there really is a group of people um, in that area, then start a sister march. I mean, there are going to be independently run sister marches all around the world, really in this country. And then also in London, Stockholm, etc. Um, so yeah, there are a bunch of youth who are kind of joining our our mission to be heard um, in the area of climate, and that is really impactful. Okay, and it looks like um, it looks like there's a tool to find sister marches on your website. Um, but if uh, if if there isn't one nearby, what's the best thing? How could somebody, if they wanted to start a sister march, do they reach out to you? Do, uh, you know, do they reach out just via, again, social media? What's the best way for them to do that? 
Um, so you could send a message to our Instagram account at this is zero hour. Um, and right. also like there are some cases that we've had that like people just don't have enough support in their communities for a uh, sister march. Mm-hmm. Um, even if like you just have a small group of like 10 people, you can always just go meet with your mayor or um, I don't know, like the sustainability director at your local government, city hall, like whatever. Um, and you can meet with your elected officials. Right. It's not all in DC. Right. Right. Yeah. And I would, right. I would also add too, like just the, you know, the power of climate conversations, like the fact that you have this whole network of people who are learning how to talk about these issues, you know, talking with their families, talking in their communities, talking with their peers um, is, you know, as you said, this whole idea of humanizing climate change, you know, it starts with all of us. And I I think that's just such a a powerful, powerful way to, to make some change on the ground. Uh, We often talk about this phenomenon, phenomenon of climate silence, right? That people just are afraid to have these conversations because they think that they might have to have a PhD in atmospheric science or that they don't have all the IPCC report facts in their back pocket or, you know, the, the latest news or whatever, but you know, you, you don't need any of that. It's um, there's, there's a lot that you can do to just break that climate silence. And um, yeah, I just love everything you guys are doing. Thank you so much for your support. Yeah. Um, so just to, to kind of wrap up, uh, it seems like a good note. Um, you know, this these are <laughs> these are very dark times that we're living in, and I I would just love to hear from you how how do the two of you, you know, stay stay excited and driven and passionate, and you know what keeps you what keeps you going. Well, I think that um, I think I am inspired by like definitely all of the other youth movements that have occurred in the U.S. in the past um, and the success that they've had. Um, And so I'm going to remain hopeful that our movement will have the same impact in changing um, the mindset and the thoughts surrounding climate change as not just an issue of science, but also an issue of people. Right. And even though, I mean, the issue that we're focusing on is kind of very earnest. I mean, I have to say that organizing it our events is just, I mean, it's really fun. Like you get to build relationships with people who really have the same um, beliefs as you on the issue of climate change. And it really kind of brings us closer together, which is so cool because we are thousands of miles apart from each other. It's amazing to think about how climate activism is making the world that much smaller. Right. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's great. Well, um, it's been a real pleasure to to hear more about your work and your perspectives and the amazing effort that Zero Hour is is putting into this this upcoming uh, lobby day on July nineteenth and March on the twenty first. Um, and uh, if you're listening at home, you can check out our show notes. We'll have some really great links to uh, to some of the resources, uh, including the website for Zero Hour, so you can get involved or contribute your, your resources, um, to help support this amazing initiative. Um, Sanaji, Madeline, thank you so much for joining us today. It was so fun to hear about this, this work. Thanks so much. Yeah. Yeah. Best of luck. You have our unwielding support. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I would say, you know, work, work like yours is what helps get me out of bed in the morning. So I feel like if you guys can do what you're doing, then, then I can definitely, uh, 
I can get out of bed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So, well, um, now we'd like to to wrap up our show um, with a, a new segment we've started, um, which is, is is an ask me anything uh, or ask us anything. Literally, ask <laughs> Ramesh and, and I anything you would like to know about us, um, whether that is, you know, what our favorite dystopian sci-fi novel is or um, what we binge eat at the end of the day after reading terrible climate change news, uh, how the carbon cycle works, you know, anything you'd like to know. Um, so we've had a couple of submissions. Um, and actually for this particular one, I'd like to invite our guests, Madeline and Zanaji, if you feel like answering the the, the AMA, um, feel free. Um, we, <laughs> we, we had to, um, Ramesh, do you want to introduce our first question? Sure, sure. So, you know, we've, we, when we put these questions out, we, we generally throw them out over Twitter, you know, the, the ask us anything. And, um, and so the first one that came in was, uh, what is our favorite type of, um, what are your favorite kind of socks? <laughs> Yeah, that's from Sarah Myrie, who incidentally, spoiler alert, is going to be joining us as a, as another rotating co-host, which I'm super stoked about. Um, yeah. She was on the show previously for a really great episode about Me Too and and the climate movement. And um, yeah, so so Sarah Myrie uh, would like to know what our favorite type of socks are. Um, Ramesh, do you do you have favorite socks? Uh, you know, I have. Um, you know, I have. I have to say the smart wolves are really, um, you stole my answer. The, I know. I'm sorry. That might also be the only brand of sock that I'm particularly <laughs> familiar with. It might be the only um, brand of socks ecologists know about. <laughs> right. Right. That we unfortunately wear with our Birkenstocks too often. Um, and if you have a toe loop, then so, you push the toe loop down so that you can put the, the normal socks over. That's correct. That's <laughs> correct. Um, no, but those are some, those are some comfortable socks. I'll tell you that they, they work well on a hike in the field and, uh, you know, in the classroom, I guess, whatever that means. <laughs> yeah. They have some like really, they've like, there's fashion ones. There's like that's right performance ones. I actually have, um, like running socks. Like I have gym socks that are smart wools that, uh, have lasted me like a decade. So, and then, so, so smart wool, if you're listening to this, you should definitely become a sponsor of the podcast. Cause we just gave you a lot of free advertising. Um, right. There we go. So I don't know, Zanaji or Madeline, do you have favorite socks? That's a silly question. Uh, I would, I guess, say uh, maybe toe socks in the winter. Ah, nice. Okay. It is or, or even if you don't know the brand, do you have, do you have a particular, like, do you have a particular pair of socks that every time you put on, you're like, oh yeah, I'm home. <laughs> no, I do not. Do you? Uh, I don't. Well, no, I don't. I don't. I have a pair of socks that I, uh, that's got a whole bunch of Alaska wildlife on it, but, uh, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily mean anything, but I only whip them out at certain times of the year. I, I'm just, I'm sorry. I'm just feeling like <laughs> dear, dear, uh, zero hour. We would love to have you on our show where we're going to ask you lots of really important, deep questions about, you know, the movement. And then we're like socks, <laughs> just going to drop right. some socks on you. Um, but so our, right. our second question actually, um, gets us a little bit back on, on topic and a little more serious. Um, uh, which is, um, from Zach Throckmorton, uh, who is a biological anthropologist, uh, on Twitter asks us, um, 
What are your favorite conservation or climate change focused activist slash charitable organizations? And I love this question because people are constantly asking me where they should give their money. Uh, so for me, some of my favorite, oh gosh, it's like narrowing it down is really hard. Um, I, uh, other than zero hour, which is my new favorite one, um, I would say one of my favorites is the Climate Science Legal Defense Fund which I'll throw out there just because um, they're they're doing a lot of amazing work and they're not necessarily on people's radar. And so just think about the fact that we have to have a climate science legal defense fund um, because of, you know, attacks on climate scientists. So that's, um, that, that's one that comes to mind is a, a group that does amazing work. Um, I'm also a big fan of the Union of Concerned Scientists. Um, they do a lot of really great trainings and lobbying efforts and, um, you know, bring scientists to, to the Hill to, to, to talk to, to Congress. So I'll throw those out there. Um, I will give a, um, shout out to citizens of climate lobby. I really like them. Um, they've got a really nice, um, focused proposal on how to put a price on carbon. Um, and I will also give a shout out to, um, a group called compass, which isn't necessarily focused on, climate, but it is focused on science communication. And so they are a great nonprofit as well, um, helping scientists convey their message to a broader audience outside of the ivory tower of academia. So those are two that I really enjoy um, sort of working with or, you know, retweeting, I guess. <laughs> cool. Uh, Zanaji and Madeline, do you have another organization that you've really liked working with or maybe that that's kind of near and dear to your heart? Um, so I actually don't have like a specific organization and of course zero hour is the best one you should give us all. well I mean, yes. yes absolutely um, and and like in, in addition to our partners um i actually just recently found this um company called the missoula resort um and it's in thailand and i think they're really cool because they've centered their business around sustainability and conservation um and so basically they're getting more revenue from tourism because they're protecting the reefs and the um, marine life that is there. So I think that's- Oh, cool. Also, I'd have to say um, PowerShift Network, um, which is kind of a DC-based organization. We have a great relationship with them, Zero Hour. Um, and yeah, they kind of share our views about the importance of youth um, in, the, in the whole issue around climate. And yeah, they're doing great work. Very cool. So we have- Lots of great opportunities to uh, to to spread your your finances. If you're looking for places to to support, if you can't uh, get out in the streets yourself, you have many proxies that you can kind of get your dip your toes into. Wow, that's a lot of mixed metaphors. Sorry. Uh, and so that's our that's our show for this week. Um, we hope you en enjoyed learning about Zero Hour as much as Ramesh and I did. Um, and of course, we always love to hear from you, our listeners. Um, we want this to be as your show as much as possible. So we'd love your feedback. We'd love suggestions of conversations that you would like to hear folks or organizations or stories that you know of that you think we would love to share with, with the broader listenership. Um, you can contact us at ourwarmregards at gmail.com. You can also uh, tweet us at ourwarmregards. And of course, subscribe to the podcast in whatever your favorite venue is. And uh in the meantime, keep your head up and uh, be well and do good work. Thank you.